You're listening to the UI podcast by the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. Hello, everybody, and um, you're most uh, welcome to this seminar talk um, with the headline LGBTQ Rights Under Attack, a Global Outlook. We'll cover a complex and a critical moment of um, what is today often described as a backlash to uh, LGBT and uh, women's rights. What are the driving forces of these attacks? What examples do we see that support the idea? Who are the forces of this nationalistic or neoconservative agenda in terms of states, organizations, and transnational networks? And um, I have a very competent panel here with me today that I will very soon introduce. My name is Anna Maria Sorberg. I'm a freelance journalist. And I also want to say before we start that um, this talk is being recorded. Um, so it will be um, um, later on aired um, through um, the Swedish Institutes of International Affairs, uh, but also through the Royal Dramatic Theatre. So in the end, when we have talked for 45 minutes, we will open up uh, for you guys to reflect and uh, say things. If you don't want to be part of it, you will have to then uh, mention this to me so we can take that away uh, in the aftermath. Um, <clears throat> so I will introduce shortly the panel and then you will later have the opportunity to get back to, to this thing, to your, your work and stuff. Uh, right beside me is Nila Goshal, who is senior researcher in the LGBT rights program Human Rights for Human Rights Watch. And then we have Goran Militic, who is the director for Europe with the Civil Rights Defenders. And then Emil Edenborg, research fellow of the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. And also in, you're also working with Södertörn University. I should say that this is a collaboration between the Royal Dramatic Theatre, as I said, and the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. I also have been told to add that this is a seminar that was thankfully enabled by the financial support of SIDA uh, through uh, Forum Seed. So as you, maybe a few of you have already seen uh, the play, uh, we're sitting and based right in the middle of the choreography for the legendary play um, Angels uh, in America, a play that was written in the 90s um, and um, is about the AIDS crisis and the political conservatism and nationalism under President Reagan's um, presidency at that time. And, um, I guess that will be a good starting point here to talk to you, Nila. You just landed from um, United States and uh, what is now more and more being referenced to uh, Trumpism, the Trumpism era. And uh, maybe the link is very obvious now these days, but what do you think about that link between the, the actual the play that we're seeing here with the 80s and 90s and... Um, and uh, what is actually happening right now in the, in the United States. Thank you, Anna Maria, and hello, everybody. Thank you for being here with us tonight. 
Um, as Anna Maria said, I just arrived from the US. I'm originally from the US, um, but I haven't lived there for the last 11 years. I've been living in East Africa for that time. Um, so it was an interesting moment to, of course I go back regularly, but um, to go back and, and spend some time there in Washington DC. In fact, I had a dream last night about Trump, which was quite disturbing. <laughs> this, this man can even invade your sleep if you start to think about him too much. Um, so I don't, uh, I work at Human Rights Watch primarily on LGBTQ issues in, in Africa and the Middle East, a bit in Asia as well. Um, but along with my colleagues, we of course closely follow the situation in the US. And um, I think to a certain extent, we have come far enough that we are not going to go back to uh, the Reagan era, which was um, you know, what, what uh, Angels in America was depicting. Um, there is strong enough recognition, um, particularly for lesbian, gay, and bisexual rights, a little bit less so for transgender rights in the US that in some ways um, we're not going back. And there are encouraging moments that happen, uh, encouraging moments often preceded by discouraging moments. For example, um, President Trump trying to step backwards on the decision that had made under the Obama administration to allow transgender people to serve in the military. Um, that is uh, you know, very distressing to see, um, to see the leader of the United States take such a step backward on that, but then what, what is encouraging is that you have then the Secretary of Defense saying, no, I don't think so. Um, uh, you know, I think that we can have transgender people serve in the military uh, without any problem. Um, and, and so there is even among you know, more conservative forces Uh, some efforts to override um, what the more you know, deeply fundamentalist forces, I guess I would say, are trying to, to push through. Um, on the other hand, there is definitely um, progress that has been stalled and there, there is certainly um, a form of backlash. And one of the ways in which we're seeing that is a whole series of so-called religious exemption laws that are being passed by states. And these are laws that allow service providers to discriminate against people on the basis of their religion. So, um, you know, many of you may have heard about the, the, the cake uh, bakery case in which a bakery refused to, um, to bake a wedding cake um, for, I believe, a lesbian couple and um, argued that their religious beliefs and, and their freedom of expression, in fact, should allow them not to have to provide this service. Um, now, cakes are one thing, uh, they're very symbolic um, and therefore important, but even more important is that states um, have passed bills that, for instance, allow um, welfare agencies, social welfare agencies, not to um, allow same-sex couples to adopt children. In cases where it was previously allowed to, you know, for, for same-sex couples to adopt children, there are now laws saying um, if your religious beliefs, uh, you know, don't allow you to do this, an adoption agency can say, no, we're not allowing any same-sex couples, and the state welfare agency has to accept that um, on the basis of these people's freedom of religion. So these religious exemptions laws are, are eating away at some rights, um, again, in the name of freedom of religion um, or freedom of expression, and um, of course, we're also seeing quite a strong backlash against tra transgender rights um, with states like North Carolina, adopting bathroom bills that don't allow transgender students to use a bathroom that corresponds with their gender identity, um, which of course put trans transgender children deeply at risk. Um, so, you know, there's, there's a bit of a fear in the movement in the US that for the next few years, all we're going to be able to do is just hold our ground 
and, and that there will be some cases in which things fall back, but I, I feel a bit encouraged by the fact that the general public has moved far enough along that it doesn't seem like all will be lost. Thank you for that, Nila. <clears throat> Goran, what do you say, um, the actual term, um, global backlash that we're, that we're talking about here, um, do you think it's a legitimate way of describing things and what would you, what would you how would you enter this, this field? Um, as I always like to say, devil is always in details and as we mentioned before, before we start, I mean, things are much more complex. Uh, I'm director for European Civil Rights Defenders, this is Swedish international organization, and I started working 15 years ago uh, for Civil Rights Defenders, uh, and we are now quite global, we exist in Latin America, Africa, Asia, Eurasia, and I'm director in Europe, our uh, Europe office is based in Belgrade. Uh, I grew uh, uh, in, uh, in Serbia, and actually I'm born in Yugoslavia. It's very hard to, to mention all countries where I was living. Uh, uh, and I'm born in 1972, and uh, when I grew up, they told me that uh, being gay is something very wrong. And in 1991, when I started uh, uh, law school, uh, I got, because in, in Serbia you're getting uh, papers like this with questions, and I got questions as a homosexuality in criminal code. So I was responding to my professor uh, that uh, homosexuality is a criminal act committed by, uh, uh, by two men, uh, voluntary by two men uh, with, uh, who are having anal sex, and that is punishable up to one year. So that was 1992. When I, was, uh, uh, when I was answering that question uh, in law school. And that was, of course, you have sub-questions uh, when you were responding, and they asked me, but what about lesbians? Are they, uh, can they be punished according to, uh, to a law? And I say no, and so on. So I passed that exam. So uh, uh, that uh, way of, uh, uh, of telling your professor that you are criminal, it's something really uh, awful. And this is my first time that I faced uh, uh, with, with some things. Then uh, later, uh, later that year, in, let's say 1993, we tried to establish the first big organization in Belgrade. Uh, and uh, we were not able to establish it because uh, the aim of organization was to erase uh, that, that article of criminal code. And we were not, uh, we were not allowed, uh, uh, allowed to do that because this, is, uh, uh, this was something something punishable, and if you want to do something punishable, you cannot uh, register such organization. So having that in mind, like 1993 and now 2018, I'm a member, so 25 years later, I'm a member of Organizing Committee of Belgrade Pride, and uh, four, four times our Pride was banned and Civil Rights Defenders helped, and now we have four uh, Prides that happen in Belgrade and Prides that are happening in many uh, capitals in the Balkans, in former, uh, former uh, uh, Yugoslavia and in general uh, in the Balkan region. So it is a big improvement and, uh, uh, that I can feel, and we can now talk about uh, uh, a registered partnership, not marriage yet, but registered partnership in, in Serbia and in many uh, uh, Balkan countries, and this will become a reality probably uh, during uh, European, uh, European integration. So this is a kind of, uh, of reality uh, in, in countries that will, let's, they want to become uh, a member of EU, and EU became a helpful force in the case of the Balkans, but that's not always the case. 
From my perspective, if you are uh, looking uh, globally, I think that we always should have in mind the regional uh, context. That's first thing. And second thing, we need to, to have in mind a political reality or reality, let's say, in one country. Is it the United States or is it uh, Turkey, as we mentioned, when Erdogan now came and quite a liberal climate became now uh, extremely hostile uh, at the same time uh, like in Russia and so on. So I think we should, we should watch more, uh, more, uh, 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 more regionally. If you're talking about this region here, let's say Europe, I think the, the relevant framework is the Council of Europe uh, uh, membership. You have 47 member states and Russia is there, Azerbaijan there is there, Turkey is there, Balkan countries uh, and some other countries that are not that uh, let's say, nice toward LGBTIQ uh, uh, community. However, what we have as a judgment of the European Court became quite clear standard for them. In some other regions, we maybe don't have clear standards. But for those, those countries that I mentioned, standards are quite clear. And since the end of 2015, uh, any kind of legalization of same-sex uh, 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 partnership became a quite clear, uh, quite clear standard for those countries. This is very, uh, very important because uh, uh, authorities in these countries are trying to, to pass the message to the community that we don't have clear standards. EU is not clear about the standards, and uh, we don't know what we should do, and so on. And uh, I think it's very important, at least for this region, that we have a quite clear uh, framework. Unlike some other regions, like in Africa or Asia, when, when uh, framework is unfortunately not that clear, we don't have a clear standards. What exactly governments should do? They should have a, uh, 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 they should respect human rights of LGBTIQ community, but things are not clear. Fortunately, in this region, uh, things are quite clear, and I think uh, 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 that we should, uh, as a communities in these countries, uh, can push much more uh, in, in that direction. But I think that situation globally cannot be, cannot be painted black and white. Of course, I mean, comparing to Sweden, I mean, during Stockholm Pride, you have rainbow flags on every single bus in the street. And you know how many countries in the world can have such uh, uh, such let's say environment. M myself and and some activists from the Balkans, we were crying when we saw that for the first time. So comparing to that, I mean, for us, it's it's a, you are really here on top. But of course, I guess for you guys here in Sweden, I mean, this is you you will say that you have a lot of problems and that you still need some improvements in terms of human rights for LGBT community. Thank you, Goran. And uh, Emil, how do you relate to the term? Um, the global uh, backlash, do you think is a legitimate term and do you use it? Mm -hmm. um, thank you. Uh, my, my research has uh, mostly concerned, um, before I've studied uh, state homophobia in Russia and the adoption of the homosexual propaganda law that you might have heard of in 2013 in my current research at the, the Swedish Institute of International Affairs and at Sudeton University concerns, has a more global focus, and I look at, partly I look at um, Russia trying to uh, act as a global promoter of so-called traditional values and the effects that this kind of, pro this project has had or not has had uh, in different parts of the world. And partly I look together with my colleague, um, Maria Brock, we uh, I'm, I'm look at the situation in Chechnya you also might have heard of that uh, 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 an 
purge, a state-initiated um, purge of targeting mostly gay men was initiated in, in, in 2017. Uh, and based on that, and on, and on my reading of, of, of a, the more global situation, I, 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 I agree that we cannot, that we have to look at differences. We cannot talk in, in two sweeping terms. Although I would definitely say that there is a pattern in many parts of the world, uh, not not uh, kind of restricted to the to, to, to the to the non-Western parts of the world, but in many parts of the world, there is a pattern of increasing attacks against LGBTI rights. Uh, should we call it a backlash or not? Uh, I mean, the term backlash, in a way, kind of would would kind of. Uh, um, allude to that there, is, there has been some progress and then there is a counter-reaction to that. Uh, I mean how, for example, like Susan Faludi wrote about the backlash to feminism in the 1980s as a reaction to, not, to, 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 femini to, to feminism and, and, and uh, change in, in gender relations in the 1970s. Uh, that might be the case, a similar kind of development in, 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 in some countries. Uh, maybe we can talk about the back bathroom laws in, in, in the US as some kind of reaction uh, to same-sex marriage, to marriage equality, uh, some kind of backlash, maybe. I don't know, but if you look at, for example, Chechnya, it's, there hasn't been progress. There is no visible uh, LGBT movement or there is no kind of queer visibility in Chechnya. Uh, and hardly, there, there was hardly in, in Russia either. It was a very marginalized uh, movement before the, the government started its kind of targeting uh, queers. So I think that it's difficult to talk about the backlash there. Uh, I think it's, um, there's a, a researcher called Merit Weiss talks about anticipatory mm -hmm. uh, mobilizations. That is homophobia, transphobia that happens before, uh, before anything has happened, before kind of uh, progress has happened. Maybe reacting to, to things elsewhere, re reacting to reports about same-sex marriage in the West. Uh, and I think that uh, what's happening in Chechnya, the, 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 the gays, they very much play a role of an imaginary threat, of, an, of a boogeyman, of a ghost, that is as a, seen as a very symbolic threat to uh, and, and, and rather than, 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 than a reaction to, to things that has actually happened in the country. Um, and then it differs in different contexts. What are the kind of, what are they symbols of? What, are, what is the queer, or what, what are the LGBTI people becoming symbols of? Um, in Russia, for example, it's often connected to the so-called, to the demographic threat, the fear of birth decline. Uh, in other countries, it may be kind of glued onto other issues, real or imagined issues. And uh, like you say, Chechnya is a really urgent example that we've been talking a lot about, um, a horrific uh, example. Is What would you say are the driving forces there when, it, when you look at who the actual actors in this uh, force against, um, for example, the, the gay people as the ghost here? Is mm -hmm. it the organization? Is it the state? Um, is it all of them? Is that why it's so powerful there? In that context, I think it's 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 complex. Uh, it, it was. It's 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 clear that it was initiated 
by the local states. Chechnya in many ways functions as a state within the state of Russia. Uh, that state, the, 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 the local president of, of, of this independent republic, Ramzan Kadyrov, kind of runs Chechnya as his own personal dictatorship. Uh, and it cannot be really separated from, from how the, the uh, uh, how the, 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 the general human rights situation in Chechnya, which has deteriorated for decades. Uh, and in this way, this was a continuation of how other groups have been targeted. And, and, and in fact, the, the, the gay men that were being, be, being detained in 2017 were also held together with, uh, and not always really separated, even in rhetoric, from drug addicts, uh, perceived Islamists, uh, so it was, in that way, it was, it was part of a general crackdown on, on human rights. And then I think we cannot ignore uh, the, 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 the development in Russia since 2012, when, when, when Putin came back as a president after an interlude, and when, when kind of the state, the federal state here, has have been using homophobia as an instrument to stigmatize various enemies. Um, uh, and, 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 and this kind of general context in Russia worked as a kind of carte blanche or a kind of silent uh, kind of um, approval of the development in Russia because they had already, the queers had already been signaled that they are the enemies of the state, the enemies of Russia. So in this way, this was kind of a logical extension of that trend, I would say. I uh, wanted to ask you, Nila, you, you cover um, um, Middle East and you look into uh, the, middle, um, uh, the Middle East, which, and then, for example, Egypt, that is now the, I would say, probably the second example of what is mostly discussed when we talk about the, these attacks towards global LGBT rights and women's rights and stuff. Um, what is your reaction when you look into Chechnya and... Um, for example, Egypt here, is there links that you think is useful to look at uh, when we see these, uh, look at these attacks and, and also separations, I guess? Yeah, I, I do think that there are very useful links, although the roots of, of the problem in, in various countries are sometimes localized. Um, I, I wanted to mention that when you talked about Russia as, as um, positioning itself as the defender of traditional values, Egypt has also been sort of its, its co-conspirator in doing that. Egypt and Russia at um, the United Nations level, for instance, have um, formed com common cause in promoting this idea of the, the traditional family and family values. And they've done a lot of kind of co-opting language of human rights. Um, going so far as um, passing a resolution on the protection of the family. Um, and specifically, they used the term the family rather than families or different types of families. And it's very clear what, what kind of family they're thinking of. Um, Egypt has also been behind a series of initiatives at, at the United Nations to oppose any language around sexual orientation and gender identity. Um, so, for instance, they were able to mobilize, and it's not just Egypt, of course, but they've been one of the main mobilizers of both uh, the Organization of Islamic Cooperation and the African group at the UN um, in opposing the appointment of a UN independent expert on sexual orientation and gender identity. And their argument is sexual orientation and gender identity. These terms don't appear anywhere in international treaties, and therefore we shouldn't discuss them. Um, and of course, we know that there are a lot of terms um, 
you know, I think of people with albinism, for instance, I think of other vulnerable groups, orphans, whose names might not appear in any international treaties, and yet we still agree that, that we should protect their rights using the instruments of, of human rights that exist. So that's going on at the international level. Um, so several of these countries uniting with each other to try to push back progress. And in that sense, it very clearly is a backlash. The pushback is because there has been progress at the UN level in terms of when you examine a country's human rights record, not you now examine its record on LGBT rights, among other things. So strong pushback against that. And then on the national level, yeah, I, I mean, 2017 was in many ways a bad year, and I think we all felt that we were just under attack from all sides, um, Chechnya being probably the most severe example, but Egypt maybe coming in close second or third. Indonesia was up there as well, so it's hard to rank them at times, but um, Egypt, both Egypt and, and Indonesia in the last year arrested around 300 people each, as, as far as we can tell. Um, for uh, offenses related to their sexual orientation and gender identity. Um, and um, in, in those cases, I think, again, I think on the, on the domestic level, the backlash term does indeed apply because these actions have been in reaction to the mobilization of movements in those countries. Um, so I think in some ways, maybe Chechnya is an outlier in terms of being one of the few places in the world, um, maybe the Gulf states being another case, but there are only a few countries in which LGBT people, I think, still remain so invisible. And in many other countries, LGBT communities are speaking out, um, and that's what I try to always balance as the point of encouragement when we look at, for instance, how bad 2017 was, that in, in most of the places where these backlashes are happening and, and these mass arrests are happening and shutting down of, of associations, freedom of association, it's because associations are forming and it's because people are speaking out and, and expressing themselves. Um, I could add Tanzania as well, actually, to the list of countries that, uh, you know, where things got quite bad in, in 2017. And Tanzania was a country where people rarely, people don't like to talk about sexuality of any kind in Tanzania. So that creates a difficult setting for LGBT mobilization, um, but it, it was beginning to happen. And the government knew that it was beginning to happen. And, and part of the reason why it was happening was because of actually bringing us back to the Angels in America theme, um, because there has been necessary mobilization around HIV prevention among vulnerable populations, including men who have sex with men. Um, so the sort of public health work that's going on in a lot of Africa has contributed um, to movement creation. And people have formed groups that are um, based around the idea of getting HIV prevention to men who have sex with men. So in Tanzania, for instance, these very nascent, you know, kind of service provision organizations were starting to do their work. The government had um, passed policies that used terms like um, MSM, men who have sex with men, and said that they should be um, you know, targeted for HIV services, but when the government started to realize that this was an avenue for people to start talking about their rights and demanding their rights, they cracked down. And so not only have they been shutting down, um, you know, they, they've shut down an LGBT organization that is primarily an MSM organization devoted to mm -hmm. HIV prevention services, they've banned the importation of water-based lubricant uh, for safer anal sex, um, they have banned outreach, um, 
HIV outreach that specifically targets key populations, including men who have sex with men, and they've banned uh, gay-friendly drop-in centers, and they've said that people need to go to government drop-in centers for things like HIV testing. So that's the form that the backlash is taking there. Um, you know, in Egypt, again, uh, part of the reason why the backlash became so strong in the past year was because people waved a rainbow flag at a Mashru Leila concert, this Lebanese band whose singer is openly gay, some young people decided that this would be an opportunity to take a stand, and they you know, stood relatively far in the back of the concert, but they waved a rainbow flag, and this was too much for the government. It was people publicly taking a stand that contradicted the government's position. And I think, um, like in Chechnya, Egypt is very, um, it's, it's the government's identity, the government's source of power, comes from the fact that it is an all-encompassing power. And so when anybody threatens it in any way, um, it needs to reassert its dominance and crack down. And so that, I think, again, is, um, you know, indicates how the LGBT rights struggle in many places can't be separated from the more general struggle for human rights. Often, um, it has to do with anybody inserting their, asserting their rights and challenging the government, and then there's an inevitable crackdown. Um, and I hope that our partners in, in civil society organizations continue to be strong enough to resist this. In most cases so far, they have, although their, their position has become increasingly tenuous. Mm -hmm. Did you want yeah. to comment well, on that? I, I think it's, it's uh, very important from, from global perspective or any perspective that EU is sending strong message because EU is at least perceived in the, in the whole world as a kind of leading space uh, uh, for LGBT rights, perceive what we can we can discuss something something else, but it's at least perceived. These 27 member states or 28, I mean, whatever, I mean, uh, are perceived really as a kind of leader. And if we have within EU uh, someone like Orban, or we have uh, Poland uh, as, a, as a problem, or uh, I don't know, uh, Bulgaria and Romania are maybe not that friendly, or they are, or they are not, and another day. It became first problem for, let's say, us in the Balkans who want to join EU. That became a really big problem already. Everything what you put on the table, they are saying, well, but why, what, what do you want? I mean, even in EU, they disagree with that. That's not, that's not an issue. And then uh, for, for, for other countries, everything what is happening in states, it became for us and for some other countries. So uh, it became, became a problem because uh, no one will go uh, uh, through uh, on the direction of improvement or uh, uh, when the situation uh, situation like that other countries like I don't know Ukraine Moldova and so on they are also watching what is happening in EU especially but also to some other countries okay Canada is like more safe but US is definitely and uh, and some uh, and some other country uh, 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 it is always a question that we have why we have uh, backlash why why there is something and I, I see intention in international community globally to simplify things it's always like is it tradition and I'm like Come on, guys. I mean, traditionally, I mean, you can read the book. For example, uh, people think that Orthodox countries, Serbia is a predominantly Orthodox country, is because of some kind of tradition. And there is a book, a big book about uh, sexuality is in Middle East, in Russia, Bulgaria, and Serbia, Orthodox country. And when you read that everywhere, sexuality was a big taboo, any kind of sexuality. Homosexuality is just a teeny, teeny small part, and that was uh, always taboo. But then. Uh, 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 
is it tradition or it's, it's a religion? Religion is not, not always uh, uh, that strong in some societies. Some societies is, like it's Russia and Serbia today. But it is not response, simple response, why we have that backlash and why we have, uh, why we have some problem. And I think uh, I, will, I will stop there. I mean, uh, I think it's very important uh, to, to know what kind of communities uh, uh, we have in these countries where, uh, where we have like problems and not uh, uh, full respect of human rights of, of LGBT community. And it's always, I, I will maybe generalize, but it is always quite similar. Uh, trans community and interest community are the most exposed always, uh, uh, and, uh, and they are really, uh, they cannot hide, especially if you are a trans person and you belong to another discriminated group. Uh, for example, in my, in my region, it's always Roma, Roma trans, uh, Roma trans woman who is uh, uh, also sexual worker. It's, that person is rejected absolutely for, from anyone in the society. It's beaten, it's, it's uh, I mean, a policeman is asking for money, rejected by Roma community, rejected by LGBT community, by everyone. When you talk about bisexual community, it's often uh, hidden. You cannot, you can, we cannot find uh, for, such, uh, uh, for such debate, we can find uh, bisexual people in Serbia that is relatively not free, but, but okay. When it comes to, uh, to gay community or lesbian community, it's always the same, and that's very important for what we are talking now. You have a teeny, small number of activists, very small number of activists, like 10 or 20 in some, in some countries like the size of Sweden, like we're counting how many of us want to sit in front of the camera, it's about 10 or 20 of us, and when we feel burnout, we are, leaving, uh, we are leaving the country. That's quite often happening from Belarus to Russia, to Balkans, everywhere. People, people cannot stand anymore because they, if they recognize you on the street, people, you don't know what they will do to you. Then you have a big number, really big number of supporters thinking you are doing a good, great thing, you know, you, I saw you on TV, you are great. That's a very big number of people, but they don't want to go to TV. They don't want to be activists. Activists is something, you know, too much for them, and that's a second big group. The third group, and that's very important in the LGBT community, are the ones that see you are increasing visibility, and by increasing visibility, I have more problems. Because of your increase, it is in Russia, it is everywhere. They say you should not increase visibility, we should be invisible. And while I'm invisible, I'm fine. And then at the end, you, are, you have member of not member of community, men having sex with men and women have sex with women. It's only sexual and they don't want to talk even, even about identity, about any identity. So we, are, we should be very, uh, uh, very realistic about the community we are talking in, in those countries and comparing to Sweden when I see that you, you can be whatever you want. It's simply, it's simply, it's not like that in many, uh, in many countries. And when you're talking about activism and changing things, for example, I remember one activist in Azerbaijan who was talking for two hours and he said, oh, no, 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 no activism. No, we are dealing with social aspects. We are not political. And I say, what, but how you, you, you what is your interpretation of political and non-political? And this is, we, we should be uh, realistic about, uh, about how to say, uh, uh, LGBT community in every particular society. Yeah, you wanted to jump in. Yeah, uh, uh, on, you started by talking about how, how Europeanness or the EU has, has become, if, um, the, the basis in reality we can talk about, but like how it has become symbolically connected to LGBTI issues yeah. uh, very much. And, how, and I think that po points towards uh, a geopoliticization of sexuality, of sexual politics, how it's how you how a country treats its LGBTI people increasingly is taken as a kind of 
marker of to which world do we belong? Are we Western? Are we Islamic? Are we you know, part of, are we Eurasian? Uh, in, 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 my, in my work now on, on, on Russia's kind of role as promo in promoting traditional values abroad, uh, that's very, very obvious, if it, or it's very, very clear if we look at, particularly if we look at Central Asia and parts of the Caucasus, how uh, LGBTI rights have become uh, uh, this kind of symbolic geopolitical marker uh, that countries strike down on LGBTI rights as a way to kind of distance themselves from the West, from Europe, uh, and, and, and reassert or assert their belonging to a Eurasian community or their closeness. And what are the dangers with that? And that obviously that. makes, I mean, the, the connection to Europe, I mean, there's much research on how it has had consequences in, 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 in especially Poland and, 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 and Hungary uh, after EU accession, that how the longing or like the, the, the wish to become close to Europe has, uh, has, has led to progress or has kind of furthered progress and, and legislative changes uh, that have been positive for many LGBTI people. Uh, in, in, in other parts of the world now, and maybe also in, po in Poland and Hungary, uh, we see the opposite, that, that the wish to become, uh, to, to distance oneself from Europe when Europe has lost some of its normative pull uh, for, for various reasons. Uh, and now that this association has, has, is so strong, it works to the detriment often of, 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 of queer people that they become from a from kind of hostages in this kind of these larger civilizational global battles. And that's, that's, that's a clear risk. Do you agree, Nia, on this, on this topic? I do. Uh, it's definitely a risk, and it poses a lot of challenges for those of us who do advocacy internationally around LGBT issues. We have to be very careful with how we frame things. Um, I think there was a there was a disservice done to the movement when I think it was back in or around 2010 when David David Cameron, um, then the UK Prime Minister, made comments that suggested that aid should be conditioned on adherence to LGBT rights or mm. decriminalization. Um, now, I think, uh, you know, to some extent, those comments, as well as Hillary Clinton's comments about gay rights being human rights, have been intentionally taken out of context and misinterpreted. So we see many um, government leaders in Africa, for instance, saying the U.S. has said that we need to have marriage. You know, they don't say marriage equality. They say same-sex marriage if we're going to get any aid. And of course, that's not true. That has never been true, and, and it won't be true. Um, but there is, um, there is definitely, again, a backlash against the, the European position and, and what was quite actively asserted as the US position under the Obama administration. So um, for us at Human Rights Watch, as um, a US-based organization, we like to think of ourselves as an international organization, um, and we're becoming more international in terms of our staffing, but still headquartered in the US. Um, we try to work as much as possible to partner with local and national organizations in the countries that we're working in to publish joint reports and to foreground their voices in our advocacy so that um, it's not necessarily uh, you know, a, a person from the global north showing up at the meeting with, with the government minister, um, but that person may be accompanied by, by someone who can actually speak in the voice of LGBT people from a particular country. Um, of course, in some countries, it's too dangerous for any LGBT people at all um, to go and present themselves to a government minister and advocate for their rights. 
In those cases, we try to find ways to collaborate with mainstream non-LGBT human rights organizations and to nudge them a little bit further um, towards taking positions, public positions in support of LGBT rights because sometimes they, as organizations that are not perceived personally as LGBT, have a little bit more wiggle room to do that and to stand up and say, well, we think that this is part of um, you know, a broader notion of human rights and we think that LGBT people's rights should be defended, whether or not we ourselves are LGBT. Um, so all of that is a challenge. I, I think um, there is, you know, one, one sort of encouraging um, development in recent years has been the shift in position of Latin America. Um, Latin America is a region where until the 80s, almost all the countries uh, criminalized same-sex conduct still, I believe. I think in the, la the last countries in Latin America de to decriminalize uh, were in the 1990s. This is traditionally a very strongly Catholic region, um, you know, very conservative on some aspects of women's rights, for instance, and yet Latin America has in many cases become a beacon for LGBT rights, particularly transgender rights, uh, the right to legal gender recognition without um, having to go through coercive and bureaucratic procedures. Um, countries like Argentina and Chile are really at the, at the forefront um, and leading the way for, for other countries around the world. Um, recently, the Inter-American Court on Human Rights, as you may have heard, um, issued a, it was called a consultative opinion, so it's not a ruling per se, but it was a consultative opinion in response to a question submitted by Costa Rica. Um, and the consultative opinion stated first and foremost that transgender rights must be recognized and that countries must provide um, a simple, straightforward and rights respecting path to legal gender recognition for trans people. And second of all, that all countries in the region need to move towards marriage equality. Um, the consultative opinion gave a little bit of leeway in terms of recognizing that in some countries that involves legislative procedures that may take time, but it essentially said you need to um, pretty much immediately institute all the rights that are related with a marriage and move towards marriage equality. This is going to be fought out in the coming months and years. Um, some countries have pretty much accepted this opinion, others have rejected it, um, but a lot of the countries in, in Latin America were already well along the way towards um, towards these, these positive developments. So, so that's happening and that's a nice kind of break, I think, in the global north versus global south or western versus non-western dynamic when you have a region that, um, you know, in some ways is somewhere in between, although that's simplifying it, um, that is taking leadership on, 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 this, um, um, on these issues. And I also wanted to mention that even in the countries that um, where, where a lot of things are not uh, looking very positive in terms of kind of proclamations by the government, um, we are seeing positive developments from the courts, and that's a, a really exciting development. Right now, as we speak, there are open, ongoing cases for decriminalization in both Kenya and Botswana. Mm -hmm. um, both of those cases were initiated by uh, domestic organizations and have a real chance of producing change. And again, the governments may appeal, there will be resistance, but there are really exciting developments that are not being led in any way by Europe or, or the US or any other global north country. Um, and so I think, you know, the more we can support those developments, but it, to some extent, you know, remain in the background, the better. Nila, you are already pointing out here some, some of the, the, the things that we should talk about now in the last part of this discussion, like, um, like what can we expect to see more of um, 
and also what can we do to work against these the, the negative trends that we are talking about so yeah. dig I, in I, I, think, uh, I think it's always I mean uh, you already heard some things I mean it is what, what civil rights defenders are doing, but there, there are very few human rights watch and amnesty. I mean, there are very few of us who are really doing something on the field. And I faced with, with that when we were trying to do something about uh, the gay pride ban in Belgrade. I mean, you, you are left, you're pretty much alone. I mean, there are, okay, you have ILGA, you have a couple of actors, but okay, who do care? That's, that's Human Rights Watch, Amnesty, Civil Rights Defenders, and, many, and, and, and a couple of them. So uh, support. Of, to local LGBTIQ activists, there's no alternative for that. Absolutely, we need to support, we need to be there all the time. When it comes to uh, another circle of support, those are EU or embassies and so on. That depends a lot of policy of that government, that depends a lot on, on uh, ambassador, uh, uh, that depends a lot of, uh, of but that's, yeah, person, personal and, and policy. In Belgrade, who is uh, uh, capital of Serbia, and Serbia is like closer to EU, we tried for so many years to have a simple statement that those countries of EU are supporting freedom of assembly for LGBT community. It's very simple. It's like two sentences, and we don't care what they will write. Just write that they support freedom of assembly. And then we, we end up that they cannot agree. 28 countries cannot agree. The biggest number of countries is 22 that we achieve. And what's happened? I mean, we find, of course, we cannot find out that easily who is against it. But then we find out who is against it, French ambassador. What's happened? He personally hates LGBT community, and immediately when ambassador change, we have a completely different approach by French embassy. So sometimes even policy of the country is, is okay, or, or, or let's say not, not that bad, but simply you have, you have a person in embassy that is not that supportive. Uh, we can have a criticism toward the EU or any actors, UN, OSC, and so on, but when you're on, on the field and when you're under the pressure, any support means a lot. So we have very few international actors that are there when, when it comes to support, very few, uh, let's say, embassies at the, end, at the end of the story. Sometimes, like, I don't know, embassy of Brazil is very, uh, very active. They want to help and uh, so on. And those things are, are, can be changed over the time. Spanish embassy was very negative, and then after several years became very extremely positive uh, toward, toward, toward the whole issue. But this is very important that we don't have alternatives. As I mentioned before, people are leaving countries after some years because they cannot stay under the pressure you don't know when I'm going in front of the, my of my building. I don't know what they will what they will do. They will kick me or or so on because they are seeing me on TV. Every time I sit in, in, in cab, I will say, "Oh, you are this guy from TV." But why you must uh, make this pride? This pride is not that necessary. So this you have you you need to live in all countries from Belarus, Russia is even worse, and some other countries that you mentioned. I mean, situation is even worse when you are when you are activist and you don't have even even uh, enough like-minded people around you. So this international support that we are doing uh, uh, around is, is really very much uh, uh, very much needed. And I should not mention uh, financial uh, support where I disagree with some uh, with some people from uh, in global movement. They say that it's a lot of money for uh, LGBT movement for the LGBT project. What I see in many different countries that is less uh, less money because when uh, international big international donors are cutting money because of refugee crisis or or some. Something, something different than the first thing uh, that, is, that is cut is, uh, is LGBT. I mean, this is something that is not that needed or we can count on someone else or so on. So I think that this is, uh, uh, this is happening all the time. But we must be solidarity is something that we cannot replace uh, by, some, by something else. When you're on field, you, you really expect that.
Emil, do you want to say something now? And then we're going to check if someone in the audience wants to add Just something. Just reiterating that, that yeah, I, I really agree that it's about the local grassroots organizations and supporting them on, on, the, on their terms and the terms that they define. Uh, I think that's, that's, that's crucial. That's, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's, that's so important. Uh, um, Mike Bosio has written about global homophobia. He, 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 he says that support and aid should, uh, should be bottom-up through the back door. I mean, there's... Um, and, and, uh, Wait, bottom-up? <laughs> bottom bottom-up through the back door. <laughs> through the back door. <laughs> I mean, the, oh, the pun oh, okay. intended, probably. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but, but, like, really to support, really to, 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 to emphasize this, that, that uh, the, the local grassroots organizations are crucial of course, here. Of course. Um, yeah, I think, and then we could talk about things like asylum policies or Western states. That's that's which does not kind of it doesn't help the problem, but it's but it's still kind of an it's it's the the the, the, the possibility to, to 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 escape one's country and get asylum elsewhere is still a safety mechanism. And unfortunately, there hasn't been like at least in Europe and in the United States, uh, the trend is not kind of very very. Very, very positive there. We might be able to return mm. on Can one more thing. Can I just say thing. one thing that's a little yeah. bit provocative? Yes. Um, <laughs> Go ahead. I just, uh, this wasn't on my, on my list of notes of things to bring up, but I would just add that one other way for, um, for uh, countries around the world to, to help would be to make sure that their own policies are consistent with the broader framework of LGBT rights. And so, for example, um, many of the people that we work with in, in Africa, for instance, are sex workers. Um, sex work is very controversial and policies around sex work are very controversial. <coughs> controversial. My personal belief and the position of Human Rights Watch is that sex work, when it is consensual um, and when it is between adults, is a form of sexual freedom. And that if you prohibit consensual sex work between adults, you are buying into a framework that justifies state intervention in people's sexual freedoms. And so this may uh, create an inconsistency between your support for global LGBT rights and your crackdown, for instance, on, on sex workers or their clients locally. So I just want to put that out there because I think that there are a number of countries that have been supportive on LGBT rights but have not been supportive on movements in support of sex worker rights. And I think that's a, that's a little bit of an inconsistency that over time we have to think about how to address. And the provocative thing is that you're saying that here in, in Sweden. Sweden. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Not to name well, any names. Maybe you will get someone to react to that. Let's see if someone wants to. Oh, yeah, we have a couple of hands there. Do we have someone here, too, who wants to say something? Okay, so maybe we'll start with... Yes, uh, thank you. Uh, thank you for, for, for a very interesting talk. I was just wondering if we could get your thoughts on, now that the LGBT issues are under, uh, as you say, global backlash, I was wondering if you could see that there's a risk for sort of a fragmentation, like the, the movement is m sort of losing track on, on the, all the letters. Maybe we start focusing on if transgender rights becomes more uh, controversial, you sort of focus more on uh, on gay men or lesbians. I, is there a risk of that when the issues are becoming a bit more controversial on a global scale? 
it's a good answer. It would be, I guess, from a, a grassroots perspective then that yeah, you're talking about. Does anyone of you want to jump in on that? Yes? I mean, I think it's, uh, it's, there is always that risk and it's happening every, I mean, it's happening every day that, it, that certain questions and certain identities are being prioritized over others. Uh, on the other hand, looking at, for example, at Russia and, and, and um, some of the cases that were, I've been looking at um, Central Asia now, what's quite striking there, I think, at least if you look at the movements, is that if you, if you look at, in the West, whereas the trajectory has been a very late adoption uh, within the, in the queer movement and also kind of conditional selective adoption of, of trans issues within, by the gay rights activists. Mm. Uh, if you look at, 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 at Russia and Central, uh, and, and, and Central Asia today, uh, where activism came much, much later, these issues are sometimes added immediately. Like when the, when the movements arise, they are LGBTQI Probably. movements yeah, uh, in a way that it's not having the tradition of, of, the, of the more like gay exclusive movements. So I think, it's, I think there are like both things happening at the same time. Um, thank, thank you so much for the really, really interesting talk and going so much into the details of the nuances. Uh, I come from Bangladesh, uh, one of the countries that was probably highlighted in 2016 for getting two gay activists killed. Um, and I haven't also been a gay activist for a very long time. I also had to leave country following the uh, killings. Um, what I observed in the countries that we have been talking about, countries like Chechnya, uh, Egypt, or Bangladesh, um, these attack on the LGBT community exist because of the authoritarian governments. And we don't really see the Global North um, <clears throat> countries taking a stand on that. And also, as you mentioned, there is this disparity uh, about resources being allocated to um, organizations in the Global South. So I would want to know from you how we can address those gaps and also hold the Global North countries to actually talk to our governments about the space of shrinking civil society spaces. Thank you. Thank you. That is a big question. How um, do you want to, do you want us to repeat uh, the question? Goran? Yes, Did you hear it? No, Goran. I didn't. Um, <laughs> well, uh, in one part, the last part you were talking about is that how you how you can make the global north more involved because uh, there is a big lack of being uh, responsible or taking responsibility for working uh, uh, in, in the place where you were. Uh, you're talking about Bangladesh and you haven't... See? In, uh, and we don't see countries from the global north engaging with those governments. And you know, encouraging them to be more open and talk about the shrinking civil society spaces because it's not just the LGBT movement which is affected by that. We, in my country, you also see the bloggers, we see secularists, we see atheists, we see publishers, teachers who are also attacked uh, and, and, you know... Uh, and they can be anything, all of them. They can be LGBT and bloggers and... Uh, absolutely, know, absolutely. This yeah. sort of intersectional approaches to issues. So 
the you know attack on LGBTs don't operate in in vacuums. So, per, uh, so I wanted to know how can countries from the global north engage with the with those states to open up more civil society spaces. Yeah, I can I can respond to that mm -hmm. a little bit. Um, uh, yeah, I think there's um, there's a lot of hypocrisy in how some global north governments. Um, speak a certain line about LGBTQ rights, but are unwilling to take on authoritarian governments that are clamping down on LGBT rights in the context of a broader crackdown on human rights. Um, and this is not only in Bangladesh, I've seen a lot of this in countries like Egypt, which I've already talked about a lot, um, but also Ethiopia. Um, you know, Ethiopia, has in many ways for a long time been uh, sort of one of the aid darlings of the West, and there has been an unwillingness to recognize or criticize its complete crackdown on civil liberties. Now, there's not a lot of talk about LGBT rights in Ethiopia because activists don't um, work very openly there. They can't. Um, I met with some of them recently, and they, they were saying that um, yeah, basically the same restrictions that are affecting civil society across the board, for instance, restrictions on foreign funding, restrictions on freedom of assembly, are affecting them in a more magnified way because they can't get any funding locally, of course. Um, other human rights organizations might be able to get some funding locally. They can't get any funding locally. Um, they can't find spaces um, in which to meet. Um, and so you see countries uh, like the United States, for example, that, uh, well, under Obama, less so under Trump, that say that they are going to speak up for LGBT human rights defenders everywhere, but would be completely unwilling to speak up for LGBT human rights defenders in Ethiopia because that would contradict their cozy relationship with, with that government. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned Bangladesh as another example of this, um, I, I don't know if I have an answer except that um, those of us in the advocacy community I think need to push governments to be more accountable to the statements that they make about global LGBT rights and remind them and point out these inconsistencies or uh, points in which their support for an authoritarian government um, essentially uh, wipes out any kind of meager support that they might be providing to the LGBTQ community in that country? I think it's, nothing is perfect. I mean, uh, we have, uh, uh, nothing is for, for granted. I mean, not in, uh, in, in any country. I mean, yesterday it was Obama, today it's Trump. I mean, and you cannot predict tomorrow something can happen in Canada. You cannot predict anything, and you, we cannot be sure that some things will be for granted in the countries that we perceive now as a supporter for global LGBT movement, and at the same time, I mean, the situation can get worse in some countries, or can get dramatically uh, better tomorrow. So I, I think that it's very hard to uh, predict and to, uh, to be sure how we will fight in 2019. I mean, maybe we will have totally different uh, countries in different governments, uh, in some in some in some countries on table, and but you need to know you know you, we know you, we know the aim. We know we want improvement of human rights, and it is always connected to the uh, quite often with the approach uh, some of some government about human rights in general. LGBT is often uh, as part of it, and I just think that in many countries, uh, LGBT movement is LGBT persons are just good enemy. 
for something. That's very, very interesting enemy because some governments and some duty holders like to have enemy. Having enemy is always useful, and in many countries it's always good to show, uh, to put the finger and say these, these are the enemies. We're uh, running out of time. I want to see. We have. Do we have one more? And then do we have anyone else here that wanted to raise their hand? Okay. So then we have time for one more, and then that will be the last one from okay. the audience. Neil, you mentioned or you summarised before uh, the situation as you see it in Tanzania, for example. Sticking to East Africa, can you do anything? Say anything about Uganda, and possibly Rwanda since we're working there. Mm -hmm. um, Uganda is a place where um, international pressure, advocacy, et cetera, has had both positive and negative results, and it's hard to know how to weigh whether it was more positive than negative in the long run. Um, the the anti-homosexuality bill in Uganda was first proposed in 2006, and for a long time it didn't get anywhere. It was periodically debated. The bill itself, uh, I believe, uh, without giving too much, um, you know, uh, crediting everything to kind of Western intervention, but I think the role of um, U.S.-based Christian fundamentalists in Uganda was pivotal, pivotal in bringing about that bill at the time that it came about. Um, there was certainly ripe. Um, you know, territory for homophobia to spread. So it's not just that some um, U.S. pastors came in and created homophobia where there was none before, um, but but Western imported homophobia was a big source of, of that bill coming up at the time that it did. Um, and then the bill, you know, was debated periodically and wasn't passed until 2014. And at the time that it was passed, I think that was, and, and Museveni signing it, I think was in reaction to the pressure from um, global powers, particularly the US and Europe. I think um, Museveni was asserting himself and was angry about uh, Western intervention on a whole range of issues, including, um, for instance, corruption. Um, but he couldn't kind of say, I'm going to support corruption, and that's how I'm going to stand up against the West. So instead he said, you know, I'm going to nail the gays, and that's the way that I'm going to, you know, stand up to the West. On the other hand, the fact that the bill was then annulled by a court um, six months later, I think was probably also due to the fact that the Ugandan government realized that this bill wasn't tenable and that they were going to lose support and they were going to lose allies. Um, so today, Uganda is in um, a very interesting situation. It has a very strong movement, sometimes divided, but very strong, very outspoken. Um, the police continue to periodically crack down on events. So uh, Pride in Uganda was shut down in August. It was also shut down the year before. For several years before that, it took place with police protection. And the controversy around the bill and the mobilization of the LGBTQ community or communities meant that people actually found kind of go-to individuals within the police that they could call when their friends or their organizations members were arrested. And so nowadays we are not seeing very many arrests at all. We are seeing some crackdowns on freedom of association. There's sort of a, a seesaw where there's this constant back and forth with the movement. They're pushing things as far as they can go and sometimes getting slapped down. And I think that will continue for a while. Um, Rwanda is, in terms of LGBT rights, is not one of the worst case scenario countries at all, I would say. Um, it, it doesn't criminalize same-sex conduct. That doesn't mean that life is easy in Rwanda, and I think it's quite difficult to be um, 
any kind of human rights watch, any kind of human rights activist there, sorry, and that includes being an LGBT activist, but we haven't seen a specific um, focus uh, by the government on cracking down on, on LGBT people. And Rwanda is in some ways the exception in East Africa um, in that regard. The other countries have cracked down on LGBT people and activists. Um, I can uh, not take on me to sort of summarize this, this talk. <laughs> it would be a PhD, I guess, in itself, but uh, we, can, we can conclude that the word complex has been used a lot here, and uh, at the same time that we have a very polarized situation um, where we know that sexuality and, and uh, gender identity and those kind of issues will be used a lot, probably in the f near future, in a geopolitical debate, uh, which also tells us that we need to keep up, as you guys do in this area, and that we cannot know exactly what to expect. But I feel like, uh, Emma, you should have the, the last comment if you want to, because you didn't get a chance to answer um, before we finish the panel, if you want to say something around this. Um. I don't remember the last question, but <laughs> uh, no. But I just just to as 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 we've been saying that like, every, every everywhere that there where there has been progress, it's been led by local activists, and that yeah. has to be the starting point in transnational solidarity. Because homophobia, transphobia today is transnationalized, globalized. It's, there are global mo movements spreading this on all kinds of levels so therefore also the kind of the resistance must be global must be transnational but be able to kind of see the kind of differences thank you very much nila koshal and goran militic and emil edenborg and uh, my name is anna maria sorberg and uh, we also want to thank you the audience for coming here and um, listening and uh, giving some opinions from yours. Um, I think you guys maybe are waiting a few minutes before you leave, if you want to talk and mingle a little afterwards on the stage. And also, don't forget, if you didn't see the play here, uh, it's a great one, Angels in America. Okay, thank you very much. Find us on www.ui.sc. We are also on Facebook and on Twitter with UI Sweden. And we're also on YouTube where you can watch our seminars and interviews.